Okay, Galatians, diving into a series on Galatians, going to work our way through. I'll talk a little bit about why we are doing that. And again, the notes are, are available. You can point your camera to that and grab the notes. Do you understand the difference between a promise and a covenant? Is that, do you understand the difference there? How would you describe the difference now that you've said yes? Okay, anybody? What's the difference between a promise and a covenant? Covenant can't be broken. Nick has something over there. Okay, covenant, maybe generational, maybe larger scale. Also, a promise can kind of be one way. I can promise you something. But a covenant goes both ways. A covenant is an agreement that we come to, we both have responsibilities. They may not be equal in weight, but they're both there. Think about the covenants that you may have made in life. Maybe marriage. Okay, we've got a couple of couples here in the next few weeks that are getting ready to make a covenant. Leah and, and Josiah here are getting married in a couple weeks. Uh, we've got others that are getting married in a couple weeks. It's a covenant you make with one another. Some of you have uh, made covenants, you might not have thought about it, that it was in a form of a covenant with a job, meaning I will do this and you will do this. It's an agreement you come to. You also have covenants, there's a little crazier way to think about it, but with your homeowners association. I will promise not to paint my house chartreuse if you won't paint your house chartreuse. You know, it's a deal. Covenants. What, what happens or how does it feel when one person changes the rules of the covenant and the other one doesn't want to? The whole thing just falls apart. When Jesus taught about communion, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He goes, I am, I am changing from the old covenant to the new. The new is more better. It's good. And it is going to be an agreement with you and I. And we're going to come together. We're going to make this covenant together. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Meaning, if the covenant ever gets broken, it's not because he changed the deal. Okay? All of that plays into the book of Galatians. This unchanging covenant that a group of people said yes to in Jesus, somehow they decide to change it. And the book of Galatians is Paul's response to them trying to change the covenant. So we're going to read through just a short passage here together. Galatians 2, 19 to 21. And just so that we kind of hear this out of our own mouth, let's read this passage together, okay? For through the law... I died to the law so that I may live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In essence, he goes, that's the covenant. That's what we agree to. I say yes to this. You say yes to this. And on we go. Now, having grown up on a farm, there were times when we would move livestock from one paddock or one pen to another. And it was so interesting because the same animal that had spent a year investigating the very edges of that entire pen, when you open the gate and try and get them to go through the gate, they're like, no, no, no. I'm not falling for that. Like, they don't know what's out there. 
They tried at every hand to get out of that pen, but when you offered them freedom, they wouldn't take the freedom that was offered. Paul writes to the Galatians, and he's actually advocating for their freedom. After spending the last month looking at Elisha, I want to move into the New Testament now for a number of weeks and look at a book that we've quoted here a lot, but we haven't looked at as a whole. If you were here over the summer, you realize that we did a couple of weeks in Galatians talking about the fruit of the Spirit, but we're going back and just looking at the entire book now at once. I'm thinking probably four or five weeks of teaching, uh, although I make no promises, and if it goes longer, I regret nothing. Okay, I'm just, I'm being honest. Another reason we're going to look at the entire book as a whole is like we noticed last week with headlines, a lot of times the short story doesn't really tell the whole story. And you can actually pull parts of a Galatians out that have a lot of punch, but you don't really understand the weight behind the punch. Paul was a punchy writer. He had lots of one-liners, even in Galatians, lots of one-liners that we take and we quote, but we don't understand the weight of them. He said things like, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Oh yeah, yeah, we say that. He said the fruit of the Spirit is, and he lists the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, we say that. He says, don't be weary in well-doing. Oh, we love that. All these punchy one-liners in Galatians are all true, but in lifting them from the text and putting them on a sign or cross-stitching them on a pillow, sometimes we diffuse the meaning of them. You can almost see Paul walking through Mardell's going, you put that on a plaque? Like, there's a lot more that you didn't put on the plaque that explain what you put on the plaque. As we do this, we hope you'll understand why we don't grow weary, why we don't faint. It's the difference between encouragement, which is needed, and encounter, which is what real encouragement is based on. And that's why I want to look at the whole. Before we get into the text of Galatians, just two quick side comments. First one is surrounding an area of which there is some disagreement with Galatians. The other area is uh, an area of which there is very little disagreement. We talked about this first area a little bit a few weeks ago when we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, but that is the timing of the writing of the book of Galatians. And I just want to tell you, if you dive in and study on your own, some people see this a little bit differently, but I think you'll, you'll see why it doesn't matter a whole ton. Galatians was either written about the time of Acts 14 or Acts 16. Those are the two schools of thought. I feel it was written before the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 because some of the things that he tells them are things that he later goes and argues for in Acts 15. And it's almost like Paul's version of a leaked U.S. Supreme Court brief where he says, these are my thoughts on this. And then later he makes the whole announcement on how Gentiles interact with Jews. You always say, Randy, why do you think that that was before? I think it was before because I think the chronology makes a good argument for it. I also think it was before because he never references the Council of Jerusalem in Galatians. Just He doesn't mention it. Had this already been made a public discussion among all the other apostles, I think he would have brought them into the discussion. I don't think he would be making the argument from his own understanding. I think he would have said, we talked about this with the apostles and we all agreed with it. That said, the real point of when it was written, whether 14 or 16, still stands in that Galatians was written to people who were living in an Acts first century Christianity revival encounter. Like they were seeing blind eyes healed, they were seeing uh, incredible miracles, they were seeing massive salvation, and in the midst of all that, Paul still had to sit down and write the book of Galatians. Like, 
the fact that they were seeing that and he needed to write this says a lot about how people have a tendency to walk away from truth. Some of you have friends who have walked away from truth, but you have to admit they walked away from truth after spending 20 years in a dead church. Okay? I mean, they were like, they weren't served very well in that respect, and they walked. These people, when Paul is your pastor and apostle, and you still come up with a way of thinking about the gospel differently, it says a lot about our tendency to drift. And that's, that's the whole point about when it's written. So it was written, but that whole thing is, it's a controversy, but it really doesn't mean anything. So if you read and people, well, my pastor says this, and my the end result is the same. The second part that we want to talk about in the book of Galatians as a whole, of which there is no controversy, and I find this more interesting, is in the, the basic outline of Galatians. We might differ on when it was written, but for almost 2,000 years, people have interpreted this book exactly the same. That's almost unheard of. The church has argued about almost everything. They don't really argue about Galatians. So if you do some reading on your own, and you're like, I'm going to just dig in. We're going to read Galatians. I'm going to dig into it. You're going to look into Galatians, and you are going to find a very much similar outline to what I am going to use through the next couple of weeks. As much as we ask God for a fresh word or a fresh application, truth is truth, and the body of Christ largely, almost with zero variation, has agreed to this understanding of why Galatians was written and how it kind of breaks down. That's how foundational that is. I say that to say if you do your research and you go, did Randy borrow this outline? Yes. Flat out ripped it off. As has everyone that you have heard teach the book of Galatians in your entire life. So, the points are just, they're kind of agreed upon like that. Those, some of you are laughing. You've been with me for a while. I have, I have a real aversion to plagiarism, and it drives me crazy, but there are sometimes is all you can do is plagiarize. No, you just steal the stuff because it's right. It is true, okay? So why for us, why Galatians, why now? We've studied the fruit of the Spirit, uh, and really, you know, what does anybody else remember from Galatians anyway? Well, that's one reason in itself to, to go back and study the whole thing. But this is why we're diving into it. Because the church, as we know it, is in a major crisis in relation to its understanding and its preaching of the gospel. Like it's a dire place. There was a time where in order to find a real bad example of the preaching of the gospel you had to go to a very liberal theologian or a cult. It is easier now because the church is struggling with this understanding and they're teaching it as very different from how Christ taught it. Not every church. I'm just saying you can find it out there. And as I'm studying for myself and reading Galatians, I'm just growing more and more alarmed at what your unbelieving friends think the message of Jesus was. And in some cases, what your believing friends think the message of Jesus was. Because like the book of Galatians, the church in America has gotten significantly off. Not everybody, but I'm telling you, it's out there and it's, it's terrifying. It would be bad enough if parts of the church misunderstood the gospel. That would be tragic. But what is worse than that is in our culture, some of these places don't just misunderstand the gospel, but they've got a megaphone to declare it. And some of the loudest voices in spirituality in America are no more preaching the gospel than I'm up here teaching chemistry. 
They're teaching self-help. They're teaching wrong ideas about personal identity. They're agreeing with the darker angels that sit on people's shoulders that tell them that they should never, ever be denied anything. And these messages are couched as encouragement for people, but they are actually discouraging people from humbling themselves and following Jesus. One of the years, words for the past 20 years that has resonated with the church is the word of relevance. It's not a bad word. Okay, it's not a bad word. Hear me out. We have mistaken what is relevant for the lives of those who are lost. And we have couched a reflection of their culture back to them in the, in the grand idea of being relevant to them. What is most relevant to them is to teach them how to escape hell. Like that is really the most, that's their biggest problem. And so this idea of relevance, I don't shrink back from it. I just don't think that for us to reflect their culture back to them serves them. I think to us show them, showing them a more excellent way actually serves them better. And that is relevant. Now, none of this should surprise us. Jesus repeatedly warned there would be false teachers and they would increase as the days come. He knew that people would be drawn to the influence and the power of the church and would try and hijack that and take that another direction. Can you imagine how bizarre that sounded to the apostles? Like, they're going to say, who is going to wrestle for control of this clown show? Like, who? look around. We're just wandering town to town, and you're teaching a few of us and doing a few miracles, but who's really going to want a hold of this? But they took it to heart, and they actually warned even in through the New Testament. They wove that warning in. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in their mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So the apostles, even as Jesus was telling them there's going to be self-teach, false teachers, you can see the apostles going, you know, who's going to take this over? A couple of decades into it, they're writing to the churches going, hey, guys, you really got to look out because there will be false teachers. Remember, these are those, like Paul describes, declaring a different gospel, loving controversy, fighting to wrestle truth from reality, and they have no more place in presenting the message of Jesus Christ than I do teaching chemistry. If I teach you chemistry, something's going to blow up. But the disaster that I could create in a chemistry lab is minor compared to the disaster of false teaching about what the gospel is and what Jesus meant. That causes real disaster over eternity. You're like, Randy, this is pretty intense. It's because I'm really serious about this. I want us to be a family of believers in right relationship with the message that Jesus gave us and adjusting our lives to the truth of the gospel rather than adjusting the gospel to the train wreck of our lives. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in trying to change the covenant that he's offered us. Now, about this universally accepted outline that, that we're going to use. The idea is here there are essentially four parts to the book that are spread across six chapters. Some of you, that's going to bother because now you're thinking in fractions. But uh, remember, the chapter breaks were added later. 
Nobody who wrote the New Testament wrote it in chapters. John himself would not know what John 3.16 meant if he held up the sign. Okay, he didn't, he didn't number those. He didn't number those. John's watching the Chiefs game. The guy's got the John 3.16. What's that about? He does, so those numbers were added later to accommodate monks that didn't know what a bookmark was. I think. So we have four parts across six chapters here. All right? And uh, these are in the notes as well online, or you can write these down, because you're going to want to reflect on, back on these later. First of all, and we'll talk about this this morning, the introduction to the book and the purpose of the book. We'll talk about that today. The second part is Paul's defense of his apostleship. He knows that what he's going to say is very strong, so he takes no prisoners from the beginning. Like early on in the book of Galatians, he lays out, why am I talking to you this strong? And rather than minimize conflict from the past, he actually brings up the conflict. He goes, oh, by the way, I've duked it out with a few people. This is how it turns out. Do you really want to have this conversation with me? Paul understands some things are worth fighting for. He picks his battles, but he fights for truth. We could all learn a little bit about how Paul fights his battles. In 2022, Paul would be labeled an unsafe person. He really would. Because he's so direct, but he's so serious about what the meaning of the gospel is. So part two is his defense of his apostleship for the things that he's about to say. Part three is going to be his defense of the gospel. He makes strong arguments about the idea of justification by faith. Justification means to be pronounced and treated as righteous. And in the third section of Galatians, Paul lays out a case about why we are justified by our faith. In fact, he lays out five different examples about why in that section. This is why we're going to be justified by faith. If you have a friend who can't quite get their head around what it means to be saved, bring them to that, that third section. Bring them any week, but particularly that section as we talk about what it means to be justified by faith, because most of us actually have to fight for that truth. Our sister said, India, a billion people who believe that they, have, they can earn their salvation or earn their way to God. The United States, 300 million people who believe that. And the gospel is a very different message. Fourth section is going to be Paul's defense of liberty. Here's where Paul's leadership really stands out. We have this caricature of a strong leader as an autocrat or somebody who tries to control your life, right? Oh, they're a type A person. They're this number on the Enneagram. They're this, and they, they want to run everything. Paul is as strong a personality as you can find in the New Testament other than Jesus, and he fights for them to have freedom. Like, his argument for them is that they would have more freedom, not less. He uses the force of his personality and his leadership for that. So Paul creates, uh, kind of crafts the book like a funnel. He starts at the narrow end, and he's, I'm concerned with your idea about the gospel. Then he says to them, I am the leader of this thing. And that's very important about what I'm going to tell you next. Then he talks about, this is what the gospel means. And then he says, because of the gospel, you can live in more freedom than you know. It's remarkable insight from a man who was not even there to hear Jesus say, John 8, 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Paul says, I am going to fight for your freedom, and I might bloody your nose to do it, but if you listen to me, you're going to be more free than you were before I wrote this book. 
So, okay, let's dive in here with the introduction. We're going to start with just rudimentary logistics, but very quickly, Paul starts throwing punches, okay? Galatians 1, 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. We start letters with who we write to, you know, dear grandma, and we, end, we sign it Jimmy, but in the New Testament, they start by, this is who I am. It actually makes a lot of sense. It's like, oh, okay, now I know who the letter's coming from. And Paul's quick to point out here, I'm an apostle, but I'm not exactly one of the others. All the other apostles answered the call of Jesus on the spot, had face-to-face encounters with him. Paul came to the office of an apostle a different way. He expands that idea in the next section, so we're not going to go into it very much. But he makes the point that, hey, listen, I'm writing from a place of authority that was given to me from the Father, even though I went through a different kind of life than the other apostles. I don't think Paul would wish his early adult years on anybody, but they were part of the story of what made him who he was. This is how creative God is. Some of you have unique ministry qualifications because of your previously unique sinful lives. Only God could straighten that out, right? Only God could take your worst screw-ups, change your heart, and uniquely qualify you to reach people based on the things that you did against him. I'm not saying the sin was a good idea. I'm just saying God never wastes an episode. And he doesn't waste Paul's. If there is an area of your life that you look back and you cringe on, ask God, based on that, what am I uniquely qualified to do or say to somebody? The Bible says we can comfort those in trouble because of the comfort we received from God. Some of you are uniquely qualified to do things that others of us could not do because of the (laughs) train wreck of your life before. It's the grace of the Lord. It was the grace of the Lord on Paul's life. Because of his life, Paul came into apostleship through a side door, but he had special ability to speak about freedom in Christ in a way that some of the other apostles may not have been able to speak about. Some of the disciples have been following Jesus since they were 15. John, what's the worst thing you ever did in your life? One time I didn't clean the fishing nets. You know, I mean, he had a very different upbringing than Paul did. It's not to say he wasn't sinful or didn't need salvation, but he's got a different story. And Paul said, I am an apostle and a different kind of an apostle because of my story. And because of my story, let me talk to you about the freedom you are squandering. Recently, we watched the movie Harriet. It's the uh, life story of Harriet Tubman. If you've not watched it, maybe you have older kids Watch it with them. It's probably not for younger kids, but man, it rocked our house. We've, we're still talking about this one. But she makes this speech. She's meeting with abolitionists who are trying to talk her into stopping from going to the South and bringing slaves back. Because now they can't just bring them 100 miles and be free. Now they've got to take them all the way to Canada. And it's, it's 600 miles. And she makes this impassioned speech. She said, I ain't given up on rescuing slaves because it's far. Many of you don't know slavery firsthand. You were born free. You've been free so long, you forgot what it's like. You've gotten comfortable and important. You've got beautiful homes. You've got beautiful wives. But I remember. She said, I want, no, freedom is worth it because I remember. Paul remembers. And he said, because I remember and I'm that kind of apostle, we're going to have a straight talk here. And I can say things to you that maybe some of the other ones wouldn't be so quick to say. 
For those born into freedom, it's just life. But Paul had walked as a murderer. And he has not lost sight of who he was or what God did for him. Martin Luther actually reflects on this passage and he writes this, I find it interesting. He said, when I was a young man, I thought Paul was making too much of his calling. I didn't understand his purpose. I did not then, I did not then realize the importance of ministry. We exalt our calling not to gain glory among men or money or satisfaction or favor, but because people need to be assured that the words we speak are the words of God. It's not sinful pride, it's holy pride. He said, Paul said these things out of holy pride, like you would not have believed where I was, but now we're gonna talk about freedom. And some of you don't remember what it was like to be a slave, but I remember, so you need to listen. He also uses the phrase there, all the brothers who are with me. Just a little bit of a side note here. That word brothers is Adelphi. It is part of the root of where, from which we get the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. So who said Rocky? No, city of brotherly love, okay? When we think of the city of brotherly love, do we think that is limited to men? No, no, we, it's, it's a, right, it's like a, a love for our fellow man, but it's a general term. That word in the original language could have referred to men or women. It's very likely Paul was traveling with an ensemble of both men or women, and those women were involved in ministry. That's a real thing, okay? If you wandered into the game late and don't know where we stand on this, we believe in women in ministry. It's a real thing. And... Many times the language doesn't show it very well, but it's the equivalent of me saying this to you, hey guys, welcome to church. You, those of you who are women would know I'm still talking about you, okay? So when he says brothers there, it's, it's that kind of word. He writes to the churches of Galatia. He's writing to the churches in a region, not just one gathering and not even the churches just in one city. Galatia is not like Corinth. It's a much larger area. It's a large area of real estate, many cities, many towns. And Paul wasn't writing about a niche problem. He was writing to people across a vast area who had somehow gotten off the beaten path. Sometimes errors about who Jesus are are real honest mistakes. Sometimes they're intentional misinterpretations. Other times, they're actually demonic strongholds over regions. And you have to wonder if that isn't what has happened here. Somehow in the demonic realm, they've gotten stirred up and across the area of Galatia, they've all started walking away from the accurate representation of the, boss, of, of the gospel. Apostolic ministry like this is often regional. And having introduced himself and giving qualifications, he continues in Galatians 1, 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sin to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. With those five verses that we dive into at the beginning, Paul explains who he is, who he's writing to, sends prayer for grace and peace based on the real Jesus that he encountered on the road to Damascus. For a strong leader, Paul is incredibly gracious. He actually uses the word grace a hundred times in the New Testament, almost twice as many times as it is mentioned by all of the other writers of the New Testament put together. He had this understanding of what it meant to be free when you really shouldn't be free. And he's praying that what happened for him would happen for them. He was jealous for them to have the encounter that he had had with God. If you want an experience with God that you long for other people to have, you've got to have one yourself. 
Some of you struggle with talking about, uh, with other people about what you want the Lord to do in their life because you're not quite sure what he's done in yours. Paul's like, I have a story to tell you. He prays that they would be delivered from this present evil age. That is still Jesus' heart for you, deliverance from this present evil age. Some have interpreted that as him wanting them to be removed from the earth. That is not what he's talking about there, okay? Does anybody remember James Traficant? Where are my political junkies at? I'm, I'm getting old because increasingly I refer to people and people just go goose in the hailstorm. You don't know what I'm talking about. James Traficant was a U.S. congressman from the Youngstown, Ohio area. He'd been the mayor of Youngstown. He went to Washington, D.C., did not fit the mold, uh, constantly would go to the house floor wearing bell-bottoms and cowboy boots. He lived on a boat that was anchored in the Potomac, and he was just loony as could be, but he would take a minute every day to make a speech on the floor of the house. If you're a member of the house, you get a minute, you can talk about anything you want. And Traficant knew that his constituents were watching, and most other congressmen never did this. He gave his speech every day, and it was a rant. And he would end the rant every time with the same words. He would complain about America and all of his coworkers, and then he would yell, beam me up! That's how he would end his, his speech. I don't, mean, I don't mean five or ten times, hundreds of times. You go look on YouTube, James Traficant beat me up. There are hodgepodges of him standing on the floor of C-SPAN, beam me up. Paul is not writing about beaming them up here. He's not saying, I want you to be delivered from this present evil age by being sucked up from the planet. No, that's not all what he's saying. He wants them to be delivered to a new way of living right where they were. One commentary I read in preparation for this used this phrase that said, he's not talking about us being delivered from the presence of something. He's referring to us being delivered from the power of something. Some of you can't separate the power and the presence of something. Because every time you get in the presence of that, you're under its power. And he is saying, no, we're not talking about delivering you from this. You're not going to, you know, James Traficant, beam me up. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, no, you getting victory over something so that you can be in the midst of it. It has no power over you. Some of you have extended families that are so dysfunctional that you can't get in the presence of them without joining the dysfunction. But you still got to go to the picnic. So there's a couple of times a year where you just join the crazy train. And you come home and you go, I said I wasn't going to do that. I said, I, I, you know, but Uncle Larry said that one story and then the keg came out and the whole thing just, you know. You can be delivered from the power of something and still remain in the presence of it. If not, then what was the gospel for? So all of this opening and this greeting and this warmth, all of this is warm, encouraging, positive. It is the Caleb portion of Galatians. And then it's over, and he just goes to town. He could be called a lot of things, but Paul could never be called passive-aggressive. He's just straight-up aggressive. He's direct. Even enough with the niceties, this is what he's writing them about, and he's going to expand about on the rest of the book. The book of Galatians suddenly looks very different than almost every other epistle, actually every epistle in the New Testament. In Romans, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Ephesians, he gives thanks for them. I give thanks for you because of da-da-da. In Galatians, nope. He goes straight from, I am Paul. I am an apostle. 
I pray for you. I ain't going to give thanks for you because you are a trainer. He doesn't say it, but it's conspicuously absent. There's no thanks for the Galatians there. Starts in verse 6. Rather than saying I give thanks, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Astonished. He's like, I am blown away. I'm not like, it's not like I thought it could never happen. I am shocked it happened so fast. The speed with which people can go from a true deep encounter to Jesus to believing a false gospel shocks Paul, who has seen it all. Like, how do you shock Paul? The point of it is this. You just can't change the covenant. You just can't change the deal. You have to stay true to the accuracy of how Jesus portrayed that we interact with him. Yet people do. They make deep commitments and then they redefine the commitments according to the situation or they deny that they ever made them. Example, not of this covenant, but other covenants. We say, when we get married, tell death do us part. And then later you have people that tell you things like, they were just limiting who I could be. Or we've grown different directions. Or we have different parenting styles. I'm not talking about abusive situations. I'm not talking about those things for which the Bible allows divorce. I'm talking for people just who got, people got bored with each other. Like, what happened to death do us part? You've redefined the covenant. Those Galatians that we're reading about had real encounters with Jesus, but so fast that Paul was astonished, they redefined the covenant, and they're still preaching a gospel, but it is distorted and it's different than the one they said yes to. Galatians 1.7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want you to distort the gospel of Christ. He says it's not just a different way of looking at things. There's not just a different perspective. You know, my, my older uh, kids that are home, not my oldest ones that are out, but the oldest ones that are home now, are becoming very interested because they've got friends from other churches and they're asking about, you know, well, what does that church believe and what is that? And I'm finding myself describing different theological positions and having to delineate between, okay, that one's a big deal. Yeah, that one's not. You know, yeah, we, we think about that differently and, and yeah, that, some things are just a matter of preference or maybe one of us is wrong, but those are minor deals. He's not talking about the minor deals. He's not talking about the fringe arguments. He's talking about the core of the gospel. It's not a different way of looking at things. It's actually distorting the version of the gospel to, until he says it's, it's some versions he uses the word, it's illegitimate. And it's brought by individuals who trouble the Galatians. Somehow these people have great charismatic appeal. I don't mean charismatic in a theological stand. I'm saying they're, they're uh, drawing them with their personality and their charisma. They came in, they convinced the Galatians that what happened to them was different than what they remembered. And they interpret the work of Jesus through the lens of an outsider rather than an insider. Don't let somebody come out from the outside and interpret what Jesus did in your life. They don't have the credibility. You were there. For some reason, the church makes the mistake of letting outsiders step in and interpret what the gospel is or should be. And then they wonder why that's different than the gospel that, that touched their heart. Slight 
sidebar, and actually I'm going to land it. We're going to leave some notes here on the table because that's the great part about doing a series. You can do that. You were there when you gave your heart to Jesus. You know what you brought to the table and what was exchanged. Don't let anybody... I'm, I'm grieved and mad and want to throw something at our willingness to let the voices of the ungodly tell us what the gospel is or what we should be doing on behalf of it. This is one of the things that really bugged me, and it's a little tangential, but I think you'll understand what I'm saying. Um, we're good friends with uh, a, a major leader in the U.S. church, Dutch Sheets. Love Dutch. I would guess there are things that Dutch and I don't agree about. We do like Mexican food. And on a lot of theological places, we're the same, okay? A couple of weeks ago, Rolling Stone wrote an article about Dutch. Burned him to the ground, okay? Quotes out of context, some just flat out things that I know are not true, da-da-da. Everybody's in this, they're in a tizzy, ah, what about the Rolling Stone article about Dutch? Had I written an article about pop culture, would you care would you expect it to be terribly accurate? And would it carry any weight? No, why? It's not my area. It's not my, not my wheelhouse. I could probably put some sentences together, but I'd be using them wrong and make my kids cringe. Okay? It's not my world. And yet Rolling Stone can write an article and everybody's in a... Don't let somebody else define the church. It's just not accurate. Galatians had allowed people to come in from the outside, interpret their experience, and interpreting their experience convinced them that something different happened to them. Don't let anybody steal what happened to you when you said yes to Jesus. Don't let them mess with that. That's holy, and that's yours. We're going to unpack over the next couple of weeks this book of Galatians and how fiercely Paul fights for the truth of the gospel so that the Galatians would know what it means to walk in freedom. The world and those that are reinterpreting what you should believe about Jesus, they never wanted you to walk in freedom when you were one of them. What makes you think they would interpret your experience in a way that would allow you to walk in freedom now? Rachel, if you would come back. I, we're going to dive back into this next week. I, I hope you're okay with just, hey, we're, we're, this is how the book of Galatians rolls. So stand with me if you would. As Rachel begins to play, I ask you to bow your heads for a moment. And for those of you who know the Lord, take a moment and reflect on that original situation, that original coming to the Lord, what he did for you, what you felt like you gave up in exchange for what you got. We just want to thank him for a minute this morning. Begin to whisper your thanks to him. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for opening the gate to freedom that was so foreign that I didn't even know 
if I could dare walk through it. Thank you for the book of Galatians that rattles our cage and reminds us that we could never earn salvation. We only come to it through faith in your son. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, if there's anyone, maybe you don't know Jesus, you came into this, you've heard a lot of talk about freedom this morning. You're thinking, I am still bound. It doesn't have to be that way. The offer stands, the covenant's offered to you. If you'd like us to pray with you, if you'd like to come to know him, just lift your hand right where you are. We're not gonna embarrass anybody, but we wanna pray for you. Yes. Father, we ask right now for this one that's saying yes to you, that you would bring great freedom. Father, you would draw that young person to you. Let's just all revisit this together. If you just pray with me, let's everybody do this together. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We bring you our sin. We ask you for forgiveness. Change our lives, Jesus. Make us new inside. Give us freedom. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just worship you. Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my soul, I live for you alone, every breath that I take, every moment I'm